He's a retired sheriff sergeant. Appeared in the first season of the television show Cops. He's also a published author. He's here to talk about the line of duty death of one of his subordinate officers and hostage negotiation. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. We are thrilled to partner with Shatterproof at FHE, the world-renowned treatment program for first responders. Because, at times, helpers need help. Exclusive treatment services for first responders who may suffer from exposure to trauma, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. For free 24-7 information, call 833-776-1420. 833-776-1420. That's 833-776-1420. Or online at fhehealth.com. That's fhehealth.com. Under programs, you'll find details about Shatterproof. Calling us from South Florida, we have retired Broward County Sheriff's Sergeant Glenn Topping on the phone. Glenn, in addition to 25 years in law enforcement, he was in the first season of Cops. Yep, yeah, kind of a famous guy. He's written four books, the most recent of which is called The Real Story Behind the Hurt. And he has been a hostage negotiator, worked SWAT, long, distinguished career. First of all, Glenn, thanks for your service. Secondly, thanks for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, John, for having me. I appreciate that. It's really a pleasure to have you. And i got to be honest, I'm a retired cop, and I know nothing, absolutely zero, about hostage negotiation, which we're going to talk about. Unfortunately, I have a young officer who worked for me who for for a couple years as a sergeant, and then I transferred to another district. He was killed on a lot of duty, and that still to this day has a tremendous impact on me, uh, and I'm sure that's the situation with you. Before we talk about that, tell us very briefly about your career. Okay. Well, I was in the military police for almost five years in Germany. I was a sergeant uh, stationed in Nuremberg, Germany. Uh, a short time after I got out, I joined the uh, small department down here called the city of Dania. Uh, about a few years after that, they merged with the Broward County Sheriff's Office. I got promoted to sergeant. And I've been with them for 25 years. So you've had a long, distinguished career. And you started, I know Dania Beach. I know the area. I, and so you went from one agency and you got absorbed by another one. So life changed for you dramatically, didn't it? I guess it did. Actually, it was a, it was a plus all the way around. You, know, you had better pay. You had better benefits. You had a take-home car. Uh, you had an opportunity to do many other things within the agency. One of the things we used to say, Glenn, being an old Baltimore City police, is that surrounding jurisdictions, they had take-home cars, and we always said, they gave them underwear to wear. We had to buy everything, and the cars we drove, oh my goodness, quite often they had like a two-by-four propping up the seat because they just were not good. Well, it sounds exciting, as long as there's no nails in them. That's good. <laughs> That's true. So, <laughs> in your career, you went into SWAT, and uh, first of all, 
I got to ask you this. A, a lot of people going to police work because it's something they had a calling to do to begin with. Was that the case for you and you went in the military and experienced law enforcement that way? Or did being in the military working in law enforcement sway you? Uh, it was the latter. Uh, when I, I always wanted to be in law enforcement growing up. And I felt like, the, well, the good, best way maybe is to go through the military, get some military experience. I felt that when I got out, I'd be probably more hireable as a vet. So I got in with the, I went and joined up with the military police. And during my tenure, I got promoted to sergeant. And um, I figured, well, let me do this when I get out of this, out of the military. And it was a few years after I got out that I decided to join the local PD. Well, good for you. I'm glad you did. I don't suspect you're not from South Florida originally. No, I'm not. I'm from New York. I thought I heard a little bit of an accent there. That's why I said that. But you must have been here so long that most of it's gone. Well, I've been here since probably the mid-70s. And some people tell me I still sound like I'm from uh, Queens, New York. You do a little bit. Uh, my partner, Robert, <laughs> he he came here at 15 and he did a Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. He works at a law enforcement agency in the Miami area. And he still sounds like he's from Brooklyn. Uh, he says that, that accent will never go away. So it's part of his DNA, as he says. And he has a funny way of adding R's to words that don't have an R in them. Do you do that? I don't think I do. Nobody's ever told me if I did. <laughs> well, I want to go to the the world that I don't understand. I'm an old street cop. And when I say street cop, that's an ultimate compliment. So when I give that to someone else, it's a compliment. But one of the things I never understood is this world of hostage negotiation. And I know we had that. I came on in 1980 and SWAT was you know starting what we call a QRT back there. In Baltimore, but SWAT was just beginning in its infant stages. It's not what it is today. We didn't have hostage negotiation teams like we do today. All those things, and that's an element of law enforcement. I think, including myself, people really don't understand. Well, it's it's definitely a, a different part of the job that uh, that changes in a in a minute. How so? What part of, of of being a hostage negotiator don't people really get that? It's not like like you see on TV. Sometimes they're very long and drawn out. Sometimes you're talking to an empty home for hours on end. Uh, sometimes you say just a simple word like, hey, why don't you just come out? And they walk out. Others want to put up a fight, whether it be a firefight or a physical fight. When I think of Hodgson's negotiation, and granted, this is Hollywood, their portrayal, I think of dog day afternoon with al pacino and i think of other things and i was just watching something on bbc content the show called endeavor which is, isn't bad and i tend not to watch american police shows too much i prefer the british ones they do a better job of character development but that's just my opinion and one of the things they did is they had a, a bank robbery scene with hostages and they showed the commanding officer out in the middle of the street with a a bullhorn or megaphone talking to the people and giving them safe passage to wherever they're going. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think that's accurate. No, it's not. You don't want to break cover to deal with somebody who you know is armed, especially on an armed you know, bank robbery or holding hostages. Uh, you always stay behind cover. You can use a bullhorn. You can use a telephone. Or if you have a throw phone, you can use the hostage throw phone. What was your preferred way of talking to people? Um, on the, uh, the bullhorn. Because they felt a little intimidated uh, using the hostage phone, but they heard the bullhorn. Really? 
And I've only talked to you for a few minutes on the phone. You seem like a pretty laid back, quiet kind of guy. I wouldn't think that you'd be a, a, a megaphone bullhorn kind of guy. Well, I am a laid back kind of guy. Even my wife tells me every once in a while to blow up something right near you, and you'll go, "What was that?" <laughs> uh, the uh, the bullhorn, you know, you know, put your voice out there more powerful. It can talk normal, but it comes out loud. And uh, you know, sometimes they we would throw the phone into them, and they would destroy it. So the next best thing was the bullhorn. Gotcha. I understand totally. The the other thing was, you said them very obvious. You don't want to break cover, cover and concealment. I'm not a military guy. You know, cover was where they they couldn't shoot you no matter what concealment. You were hidden, but you could still be gotten to. It's hard to get to you as a target because they can't see you. But the obvious thing was standing in the middle of the street with a bullhorn, uh, you, you've got a great big target on yourself. And that's what this guy did. Yeah, they do that for dramatic effects. If you see that in the movies, uh, it's nothing even like that. Not even close. But realistically, you know, if they don't show that, it's very boring. How long of the training do you have to go through to get that specialty? Well, you had to be, uh, first of all, you had to be a sergeant to be on the team. Uh, and then from there, you had to have an interview with the team and the team leader and the SWAT commander. And then from there, you had to have a, a battery of, of written tests with the psychiatrist. Uh, after that, you had to go through some practical exercises of uh, hostage speaking, dealing with uh, a hostage taker. Uh, and then they made the decision, and that took uh, over a period of uh, a month or so. We're talking with Glenn Topping, retired Broward County Sheriff Sergeant, hostage negotiation, author of multiple books. We've got so much more to talk about, including the line of duty death of one of his subordinate officers. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. Return conversation with Glenn Topping on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Glenn is a retired Broward County, Florida Sheriff Sergeant, 25 plus years in law enforcement, also a military veteran, author of multiple books, most recent real story behind The Hurt. He was a Hodgkin's negotiator, and as a sergeant, he had the very, I don't know how to say this, Glenn, the very unfortunate incident where one of your subordinate officers was killed in line of duty. And that's a part of police work that is inevitable somewhere, sometime. I know some people in their whole careers never had experienced that. I've been through it. And I'll be honest with you, Glenn, I've been changed by it tremendously. And yes, so have I, and I still think about him today. Yeah, and how many years ago was it? It wasn't that long ago. It was in 2006. Yeah. And here's the thing. It's like, uh, 
for me, it was 1989, and that's an incredibly long time ago, but it's almost as if there was life before and life after. Uh, I don't want to say I'm a totally different guy. I'm just changed. Yes, and I understand that because it's something you don't forget. Tell us about what happened. Okay, well, in uh, 2006, I was uh, just done uh, briefing some deputies on something we were doing. And one of them was this one particular deputy who was a fairly new guy. He was 23 years old. Um, he comes from a, a line of uh, police officers with his family. Um, they were doing tactical traffic stops during the at the nighttime hours. And I said, okay, listen, you guys be careful out there. You know what we're looking for. And, uh, you know, just watch the six. That's all. So they go out, do their thing. And I'm just about time for me to go home. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm leaving the district. And I'm about literally like a two minutes out of the district, all of a sudden we hear this female screaming on the radio and nobody knew who it was because you couldn't understand. She was so incoherent. And finally, another city that's on our channel came across and go, I think that's a BSO deputy yelling. So nobody knew who it was at first. So luckily these other city was close by when they found out where they were and they responded there first, which was on the highway, local highway. So, I quickly try to turn around to see what's going on. And uh, when I get on the scene, uh, I see a handful of police cars. Uh, I see the, the deputy's car, which was an unmarked car, but it had the emergency lights on it. Um, a bunch of deputies standing around, and I go, what's going on? What's happening? What's happening? I don't see anybody. Who, what's, who's hurt? And one of the guys grabbed me and goes, it's Ryan. I go, what, do you mean? what about him? Well, he, he got hit by a car. Like, what are you talking about? Well, where is he? So he goes, he's down there. And he points like about 100, 150 feet down the road. And I go, what the happened? He goes, well, they were, they were on this traffic stop, and he was standing on the, pass, on the driver's side talking to the driver, uh, and his female, pass, his female partner was on the other side talking to a passenger, and a car coming down the road was watching the traffic stop and hits the deputy and moves, hits the car a little bit that they stopped and injured the other deputy, but the male deputy, Ryan, got thrown about 100 feet down the road and killed. So I go, you know, holy cow, right? So I rode over there, and I look, and unfortunately, I see he's laying there dead on the road. So paramedics showed up, and I go, listen, if you get, get over there, go to the medics and get a uh, get a blanket, cover him up. I don't want people watch looking at him. Right. So, uh, so I then immediately went and talked with the female deputy. She was very shaken up, obviously. She was screaming her head off on the, on the radio. Paramedics looked at her and took her to the hospital to, to be checked out. And then we started working the scene. Now, when we have a, uh, a line of duty death the, on the highway, the local highway patrol did the crash report, the fatal crash report. And uh, it turned out that the guy that hit him was not drunk. He wasn't tired. He wasn't on the phone. He was just not paying attention to what he was doing. He was watching the traffic stop as he was driving by. And like I tell everybody, your hands, your hands follow your eyes. Yes, they so do. You start staring at something, you're going to start drifting into it. And that's what happened. And he hit the deputy and threw him down the road and killed him. And then he luckily pulled off. It wasn't a hit and run, luckily. Now, a short time after that, they were trying to push the, uh, the move over law through in the state, you know, that yielding law. And apparently it took one more death for that state, for the state to pass that law. And now we have that law on the books. And yet we still can't seem to get people to do it sometimes. I, I know it's not just a South Florida thing, because I'm in South Florida as well, but 
throughout the United States, we see news reports of patrol cars, marked patrol cars, lights on, everything else getting rear-ended. Officers being severely injured, maimed, if not killed, because of that. And it's not just police officers or law enforcement officers. It's paramedics. It's tow truck drivers. We can't seem to get people to do the simplest thing, just pull over. Just move over one lane or slow down. Yeah, they, they just don't do it for some reason. Now, I'm right, and now today I'm working as a driving school instructor and an administrator of the driving test. And I, I go over this with everybody in the car with me. I said, know what the move over law is. You know, any vehicle, you should move over for anybody on the side of the road, let alone any emergency vehicle. So because they tend, your hands follow your eyes. So if you see something ahead, move over. That's all. And you won't be part of it. You have been obviously in policing for quite a while. And you've seen more than your fair share of violence and trauma and the blood and gore. Was that preparation enough for you? You knew you had what you're supposed to do, but were you prepared for what you saw and what you experienced? Well, unfortunately, yes, because as a supervisor, uh, I was on the last five deputy murders as one of the supervisors on the scene. And I always took charge of it. Actually, my chief called me the go-to guy. If you need anything, go see Sergeant Topping. He'll know what to do. <laughs> Even the sheriff would call me all the time. Yeah, Glenn, I need you here. I need you there. Do this, do that. So, yeah, over these years of dealing with these deputy-involved deaths, yeah, it did kind of prepare me for this one also. I try to tell people that, you know, when we got hot calls, let's just say it was a shooting, a stabbing, a murder, rape in progress, you start going through this checklist in your mind of things you got to do. And, and and almost do a silent prayer, you know, don't let me mess things up. And I'm sitting here thinking, I never had to go to a scene like that. I've been to the calls where officers were injured. Fortunately, they weren't severe. But the adrenaline level goes up. When you said that a female was screaming on the radio and you couldn't understand, I, it took me back to an incident where a, a young female officer in Baltimore was being assaulted and started screaming on the radio and no one could tell where she's. She didn't say where she was at, and no one could tell. Yeah. But they knew where she hung out when she didn't have a call, and it had to be a convenience store. And they went there, and yes, it was a gunfight. And fortunately, she survived. Everybody survived. But when that call came out, Glenn, my heart went through. I don't know how to describe it. Up and down, it jumped into my stomach, and then elevated heart rate, adrenaline, everything. Uh, yes, that's why I used to tell my guys, and I don't care what you're doing, whenever you're out of that car, check out on the radio, because something does happen, at least you know where you are. Yeah, oh my goodness. I, I, one of the things that would happen when I was in field training, uh, my field training officer would yell at me all of a sudden, where are you? And I'd tell him <laughs> where the location was. He goes, and here's the reason why. Because if an emergency happens and you can't tell anybody where you're at, no one can come help you. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We'll return to our conversation with Glenn Topping in just a few moments. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Have you ever wanted to listen to a favorite Law Enforcement Today episode again or chat directly with John J. Wiley? Now you can. Download Podopolo for free on either app store and send John J. Wiley a DM right on the app. That's P-O-D-O-P-O-L-O, Podopolo. Has this ever happened to you? You sign up for a free email newsletter and within hours, you're receiving tons of spam. That won't happen when you subscribe for the free Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. 
sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign up area. That's letradioshow.com. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Return a conversation with Glenn Topping, retired Broward County Sheriff Sergeant, more than 25 years in law enforcement, and he's written multiple books, four books, I believe it is, the most recent real story behind The Hurt. Glenn, before we went to break, you are talking about this tragic line-of-duty death where one of your officers, Ryan, was, was struck by a, a vehicle and killed, and his partner survived. Number one, how is she physically? Is she okay? Oh, yeah, she's fine today. She's still with the agency and uh, doing what she's doing. Well, tell her I said thank you and, and, and for everybody there, yourself included. I'm sorry that you all had to go through that. Uh, same with his family as well. We talked earlier, Glenn, and there's no way of sugarcoating this, that when, when officers are killed, as a sergeant, my responsibility was to make sure they're okay, they have the tools they need to do their job, and secondly, to make sure they do their job and the citizens get the best service possible. So you're, you're balancing both worlds. I'm sure it's the same for you. But as a sergeant, when my friend, my coworker was killed, was murdered, I felt, even though I, I wasn't working there anymore, I transferred a couple months before that, I felt like I let him down, like I did something wrong. Was that the case for you? Um, maybe a little bit, because I thought... I did a little uh, police tactical training with my guys and I always taught them, you know, watch your back, make sure you know where you are. Don't put yourself in harm's way. Don't force yourself into a shooting with somebody. And then, you know, here's this kid that's technically on the wrong side of the car. Cause we always taught them don't be on the driver's side. That's where the traffic is. Stay on the other side. And, and unfortunately it happened, but it was funny getting back to something you said earlier about knowing where you are because if you don't tell what people you're doing, you had an FTO that helped you not help, you know, uh, didn't tell you where you are. Well, when I had my FTO, when I was a rookie cop, my FTO stops in the middle of the street and he says, uh, okay, I just got shot. Where are we? Yeah. And I go, I have no idea. I don't know. I'm a new in this state. I don't know where we are. He goes, okay, take a walk all the way down to that street sign, which is about three blocks away and come back here and tell me where we are. And I did that. And he goes, I guess from now on, you'll know where you are. And ever since then, never happened again. It's funny because there's certain things that stick with me. One of them is know the street signs. And I, I, when I drive by Glenn, I've been retired a long time. I drive by and I notice the street signs. And if you ask me in a life or death situation, where are you? I could tell you what the last intersection was we passed. I may not be able to tell you the block number, but I can tell you that. And that's exactly what the field training officer said to me. He goes, if my life's on the line and you don't know where we are, you can't help me. That's correct. And yeah. you're no good to anybody. So and, that's how you got to watch where you are. Right. And the other thing is, and my wife, she laughs. She, I met her years after retiring from police work. I'm right-handed. And I, if I have to carry a briefcase or whatever it might be, I always switch it to my left hand. And it's almost ingrained in my head. Keep your gun hand free all the time. Gun hand free all the time. Whether I got a gun or not, it doesn't matter. It's ingrained to me. That's the same thing with me, and I'm armed all the time. <laughs> I don't blame you one bit. <laughs> Especially the way things are in South South York, Adelphia, I call it South Florida. Oh, my goodness. It's, crime is such an issue, and, and we'll get to that in, in just a moment. You had the extreme misfortune of this, this young officer, Ryan, being killed, having to handle that, and also transition with 
another agency taking over the investigation. I, I'd imagine that'd be difficult because you'd want to make sure it's done right. Well, yes, but you know that's really out of my above my pay grade. That would be the traffic homicide guys. Uh, if even if we did our own investigation, that would be them, not me. But they give it to the other agencies, so they know there's no funny business in anything. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. What I, what I was getting at is, I don't want to say I'm a control freak because I'm really not. But if I want a job done right, I'm going to be the one who do, who does it. I don't expect other people to. Do it. And that's something I never really learned when I made the transition to promoted to sergeant, giving up from being a proactive cop to a supervisor. That's a tough transition. And I, I'm just sitting there thinking, this is my guy. This is my scene. I'm responsible. I want to make sure all the bases are covered, all the, the, the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted. And having someone else take it over, even though I trust them, it, it would be difficult for me to do. Did you find it be difficult for you? Uh, no, because I was always a very hands-on deputy. And then when I got promoted, I was more hands-on as a sergeant. Uh, because you're right, you're, it's your scene, you're in charge. And it, even if the detectives are on the scene, so what? You're still supervising the scene to make sure that, you know, like I said, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Because if not, they can come looking for you. So I always took care of my guys. I always put them ahead of me. I made sure they had all the tools they needed to do the scene or stay on the scene. I talked to all the bosses. I was always in contact with everybody. And they knew that they had to talk to me if they wanted the right information. So you had the extreme fortune doing this, and also you're known as the, the go-to guy for officer-involved shootings when officers are killed. So this wasn't your first time doing this. Uh, have you found that that aspect of law enforcement has impacted you more than, than other people realize? Uh, it probably have, because I was on so many other scenes where deputies were shot and killed and shot and injured, uh, that you, it's just like you just know what to do. Everything came very easy for me in that part of the in that part of the job. I never had to think about what I had to do. I just did it. And I never had, never got questioned from any of my bosses, uh, and it, it worked out fine for me. How about after? After, well, it was it was tough dealing with it for a while because you, know, you look at that MTC to roll call and you say just, you know, last week it was occupied. Um, then you'd have a, maybe set up some kind of memorial down the road. They did put a memorial plaque on, on I think it was on 595 down here for Ryan. Um, and it was, un- unfortunately, you know, my mom was very sick at the time. And when Ryan, at Ryan's funeral, my mom had died that night before. And I say, well, should I go to the, should I go steal my mother or should I deal with this deputy's funeral? I say, well, my mom's going to be here for another day or two, so let me go to the funeral. So I was at the funeral, Ryan, and the sheriff walks up to me, and he knew about my mom passing away the night before. And he goes, he says, Glenn, what are you doing here? I go, what do you mean, my dear? One of my guys, I'm here for his funeral. Your mom passed away last night. Why aren't you over there? I go, I'll be there. I'll go there later. Don't worry about it. But I only get one funeral, and this is the one right now. So that's what, that's why I dealt with it. One of the things you said earlier, and the truth is, I got used to not carrying a gun after retiring from police work. It took a while, but Sandy Hook changed me. And ever since then, I've gotten the paperwork, I've done the yearly qualifications, all that sort of stuff. I never leave the house without being armed because I've just been in too much stuff. And you said you're always armed when you leave the house. Is that, how, how would you describe it? If someone goes, is that a little overreaction? 
No, it's not an overreaction. After being in, in, in the, between the military police and civilian police over 30 years in law enforcement, uh, it, it became like a third arm. You felt weird without it. I, I never, you know, I, most people don't know I have it. I don't, I don't advertise it. So, but to, in today's world, you can be anywhere at any time and somebody's going to pop off and you want to be ready. Yeah, that's exactly it. I'm not an advertiser. I, you wouldn't know. Uh, I jokingly tell people there's a reason why I wear cargo shorts everywhere. I'm in South Florida like you. I never was a shorts kind of guy till I came down here and took several years. But when I'm wearing cargo shorts with these big pockets on the side, I can guarantee you there's there's a gun in one of those pockets. So just, <laughs> But here's the thing. People, and I, I don't know how to describe this, Glenn, so I'll just put it out there. When I came into police work, I had never touched a pistol before. I never knew the first thing about them. I'm not a gun nut. I'm not a ballistics expert. I'm not a collector. I'm not any stuff. But there's a reason why I carry one, and that is for self-preservation and preserving someone else's life. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We're going to take a short break, return to our conversation with Glenn Topping. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. One of the questions I get all the time is how can I show my support for law enforcement? Well, we're all busy. You probably can't go to a protest march. You probably can't go picket somewhere, but there's something very simple you can do with Facebook. When you see a post that you agree with, that you like, share it to your page. It's just that simple. Think of it this way. Facebook has about 2 billion registered users worldwide. So you can make a difference. And one of the best places to find great posts about law enforcement, our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Click like and follow. And when you see posts that you like, you agree with, especially episodes of the radio show and podcast, be sure to share it on your social media. Again, do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Be sure to click like and follow. And then show your support by sharing. Return conversation with Glenn Topping on the Law Enforcement Today show. Glenn is a retired sheriff sergeant from Broward County, Florida Sheriff's Department. By the way, if you don't know where that is, that would be Fort Lauderdale area. You've got Miami, you've got Broward County, then you have Palm Beach County. So it's South Florida. And yes, it's a busy area. Lots of crime, lots of violence, and, and he's been through it. Uh, 25 plus years in law enforcement. He's the author of four books, most recently called Real Story Behind the Hurt. We'll talk about that in a few moments. And part of his career was the early days of the television series Cops. You were on that. How long were you on the job before that became part of your daily life? Well, I was on the job for about five years before the show started in 1989. So you were on long enough to have that aversion towards cameras and the media and news and all that people, right? Uh, yes, yeah, so and cameras weren't really around at the time. You'd like to see today you know, the cell phone cameras or the body cams. The only camera that was around was the camera from the cameraman on the show. And uh, just take me back to how this became a, a, a thing for you, where they said, oh, by the way, hey, Glenn, we got this guy <laughs> from this new show called Cops. He's going to be filming you. He's going to be riding with you, be working with you. Just go about your daily thing and act normal, right? That's pretty much on, on point. Yeah, I was uh, called into the chief's office, and uh, I see this guy in a suit, and I'm thinking, oh, what do I do? Right. And he goes, well, this guy is, is, a, is a producer with this new new TV show called Cops. I go, what is that? He said, well, they, they film you during this shift, 
and you just go about your business, and that's the show. And they go, I think you'd be good at it because you're very aggressive and progressive, super, uh, not a supervisor, but a deputy on the, sh- on the road. So I got picked to be on the show. What went through your mind when they said that? Well, I thought it would be fun. I mean, I'm not a, you know, a, a glory hound or I'm not a guy that's looking to be on the, in, in the camera all the time. But it seemed like a new, new thing. It seemed like fun. So I said, all right, let's do it. So how long did they film before the first episode aired where you were featured? Well, they filmed, they stayed with me in the car for about uh, almost a week, I think, on and off. Because they would go other places and come back to me and film more. Uh, And it was about maybe two weeks after they filmed the first part that I was on. Were you uh, in a relationship at that time? Yes. Here's the question I got for you, Glenn. (laughs) Number one. How do you go home and tell the, your spouse, oh, by the way, I'm going to be on television. Don't worry. It's all good. And then did they did, did they watch it with you? Uh, well, she knew that I was going to be on the show. She thought it was kind of cool. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, she had no problem with it. You know, I told her what it was all about. And even to the point where we went out to dinner and people come up to you and go, listen, did it, were you on Cops last night? <laughs> <laughs> Can I get your autograph? Autograph? What are you talking about? <laughs> Let me practice trying to sign my name. I can't do it even still. Here, here's the thing. Uh, I've had Joe Kenda on a show a couple of times, a couple other people that, that are in television that were the law enforcement. And one of the things that, that Joe said is the first time my wife was watching the show with me, because he was like me, and I'm going to ask you this question in a moment. He didn't talk to his spouse, his wife, about what happened. He didn't want her to worry, to be, even be more worried than what's going on. And he, he said when the show was on, he looked out of the corner of his eye. She wasn't watching the show. She was looking at him, looking at him for a reaction, going, did you really do this stuff? Was that what it was like? And so I'm trying to imagine, what was it like for you and the missus to watch yourself on Cops? Was she kind of blown away? Well, she thought it was funny because I you know, sometimes I'd come across as something that got me in trouble down the road. And she goes, how do you say that? And how do you say that on TV like that? I go, no, don't worry about it. There's nothing. You know, my, I have a very dry sense of humor. And sometimes it would come across, even to the point where it got me in trouble with some of the bosses later on. But she had no problem. She thought it was funny. She thought it was a good time. You strike me as the kind of guy that you use sarcasm as a second language. Am I correct? Uh, it, yeah, most of the time I do. My, my nickname <laughs> in the Army was the Joker. The, gotcha. <laughs> so I, I got a good friend that is like that. And when he is sarcastic, I just start laughing. I can't help it because... I sit there and think, man, I wish I could remember stuff like that, witty things like that to say, because I'm not that guy. One of the things that you said, and, you know, I I never was a troublemaker in police work. Uh, I got called into internal affairs quite often. One of the number one things in Baltimore, when you you arrested a drug dealer, the drug attorneys, we called them, would say, make a complaint against the officer for discourtesy and excessive force. And they were all unfounded. However, we were practiced and trained in something we call verbal judo. When you said, how can you talk like that? Because that's not, we would talk in a way sometimes to get people off their game, to, to, to make use of force not an option. Sometimes you involve colorful language. Oftentimes it was perceived as rude. Uh, and yet I still got complaints and they were all unfounded. Was that the case for you? Uh, yes, we had the uh, verbal judo training also and sometimes you had to use foul language to get through to people you want to i was i was always a calming guy on the scene that's why i think got me into the hostage team 
so, you know, yeah, the verbal judo, verbal judo, foul language, whatever you had to use, you know, to get through to the person worked. We didn't uh, use one or the other more than the other. And there you are in the street with some cover. Unlike the television show, you got some cover, you got the bullhorn. Uh, did you use colorful language then when everybody could hear it? It's being broadcast? Oh, absolutely. Sure. Sometimes that's the only thing that got through to them. If you curse at them, then you're like, you know, what are you cursing at me for? Well, come on out then. All right, I'll come out. <laughs> Why did you talk to me like that? Well, come out, I'll explain it to you. And then, okay, by the way, you're under arrest. Yeah, I get that. And uh, and then we transition to, I don't want to say buddy-buddy, because sometimes the, the, the suspects did things that were so heinous, but you try to get on their good side. You want to try to elicit a conversation. You want to try to uh, elicit a confession, if at all possible. So you do things like, hey, you want to smoke? Back in the day, you want to smoke. You want uh, something to drink? You, you need something to eat? You're hungry? You're lonely? You're tired? Whatever it might be. That was not an easy transition to make, but it was one that was required. Did you find it to be difficult for you? Well, it wasn't really difficult. It was more like a necessary evil that you had to do. Uh, um, you, know, you know, I talked people off of high-rise buildings, off of bridges, or the, you know, the overpasses. And, uh, and sometimes it would be like, hey, listen, come on, why do you come down? After you see a doctor, let's go have coffee somewhere or blah, blah, or whatever it was. And they go, okay, you know, and then they get handcuffed and taken away. But yeah, that whatever worked, and it, most of the time it worked. So you were doing something, and I got to say this because this is a smart alchemy. You were de-escalating before it was a thing, because now we hear it all the time. And uh, it reminded me of being a, a young police officer at a suicide attempt on Valentine's Day and de-escalating that. We were using terms that weren't invented yet, philosophies that weren't invented yet, and that was everyday policing. Am I correct? Yes, it was always it always had to try to de-escalate. We had a um, uh, this the staff psychologist on the scene with us, and she would always say, "You got to de-escalate this. You got to bring this down, or t- uh, bring this down a, a, a mark or two. You don't want this getting more crazy than it is, and you know, involved in something more in worse and in, in a tragic event, a tragic ending." And I can tell you, and over the years of negotiating, the thirteen years on the team, we only lost two people to suicide. We couldn't do anything with them. That's a pretty good track record. It's a, a very good track record, actually. So let's transition. You wrote four books. Did you start that while you're still on the job, or is that all post-retirement? That was all post-retirement. Um, back in the early 80s, I was working in this rock and roll club called the Agora Ballroom. It was down in Hollandale. And uh, to make a long story short, we had a drive-by shooting where one of the bouncers was shot and killed outside. And uh, I go to help him out. I'm going to land on the ground. I put my finger in his bullet hole, trying to stop the bleeding. It didn't work. He dies in my arms, basically. So the guys that were involved in the shooting, uh, they take off. They flee the. They flee the state. They get brought back for their trials. Uh, they both get convicted of the of the murder. Uh, the uh, one guy gets raped in prison, and he's and the the family, uh, and he gets AIDS. So the family goes to the governor and says, this, we'd like to get him out. Can you pardon him? The governor pardons him so he can go home and die. About a few years later, the other guy that's in prison escapes in a laundry truck. He's on the run for over 10 years before the U.S. Marshals finally catch up to him, put him back in jail. So that whole incident, don't, that sounds like a good movie. Yeah. So I started putting this screenplay together, which had been years later. So I put this movie script together, and then I got with this producer that I know, who actually was the cameraman on the cop show back in 1989. And he goes, why don't you have it transformed from a, from a script to book and then book to movie? 
I said, so I did that. So I got with this lady in California. We transformed it into a book, which is the novel now called The Hurt. And where can so people? That was my first book. Where can people get your books? And get more information about you. Uh, the books are either on Amazon or Kindle. Uh, Amazon uh, was it Kindle or Nook or Barnes and Noble online or the exlibris.com, which is the publishing company. Glenn, I appreciate you being a guest on the show. Thanks so much for your service. All very much appreciated. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.